Baruch et Adonai Hamvarak. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One, for all eternity. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bacharbanu Mekohamim Venetin Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has selected us from all peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. And as it says in Psalm 119, verse 18, let this be our prayer. Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your Torah. So we know that the word Torah means law, but it also means God's instructions. And that's God's instructions to us. His, his word is our instruction manual for our lives. This Torah portion is called Kitetsi, and it means when you go out. And it's taken from Deuteronomy chapters 21, verse 10, all the way to chapter 25, verse 19. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit because there's a lot of um, bewildering scriptures and passages within this Torah portion. Because we're, we're not just 2,000 years, we're almost 6,000 years disconnected, if you will, from the writing of this. So this was written in a particular place at a particular time for a particular people. And so we don't understand a lot of the cultural meanings behind what is said, and we look at it through our Western eyes, and we think, well, that's barbaric, or that doesn't make sense, or that's cruel, or why would God allow this, or why would God say that? So hopefully we'll tackle some of these hard passages, because that's usually the stuff that non-believers will attack you on. Well, how can you believe in this religion when it says to do this, when it says to do that? And... In the New Testament, the apostles say that we should, uh, you know, be ready to defend our faith and have be ready in season and out of season, and give reason for the hope that we have within us. So uh, the first passage I want to tackle is Deuteronomy, chapter twenty-one. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one, and uh, we're going to check out verses twenty-two and twenty-three. So Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one. Verses 22 and 23. It says, suppose a man is guilty of a sin with a death sentence, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body is not to remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must certainly bury him the same day, for anyone hanged is a curse of is cursed of God. You must not defile your land that Adonai your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, it's an interesting thing what Yeshua did. Because when Yeshua died on the cross, he got rid of the death penalty, right? He was actually a sacrificial atonement for things that weren't provided for in the Torah itself. When you sin, you could bring an animal sacrifice, and everything would be fine, with the exception of several things. With adultery, with kidnapping, with murder. You did any of those things, you couldn't bring a sacrifice and say, oh, sorry, Lord, I, I really screwed up. Please forgive me. Oh, it's okay. This animal takes care of it. No, it was life for life. But when Yeshua came, there was no sacrifice for those types of sins, but Yeshua, he, can not only, he, he, he could forgive those sins. Those sins were unforgivable in Moses' day. You had to pay for those sins with your life. 
Now, that's not to say that Yeshua did away with the consequences of committing those crimes. You still may have to be put to death. You still have to may serve a jail sentence for kidnapping or what have you. you. Your family still may be ruined, and there still may be a divorce if you commit adultery. But you weren't put to death in the sense that your eternal soul was damned. Yeshua provided forgiveness because he was the superior sacrifice. So he provided forgiveness for some of these death penalty crimes that there was no allowance for in Torah. And we even read that in Hebrews that there's certain sins back in the day that there were you know, that there were no uh, atonement for. You paid for it with your life. You were cut off from your people as a result. So it says here, suppose a man is guilty of a sin with a death sentence. And he is put to death and, hang, and they hang him on a tree. So you have two different things going on. Crucifixion, the Hebrews didn't invent that. The Romans invented crucifixion, which is one of the most lingering, most painful, most drawn out ways to kill a person ever devised. So the ways that were employed within the Torah to kill a person because of a, of a capital crime would be either stoning or burning at the stake. And usually it was stoning. And when somebody was stoned, then as a public example and as a deterrent, that person was hung on a tree. So, and we're not talking about hanging like, you know, they were lynched. There's a rope, you know, like out in the Old West, they would hang people. They were, they were nailed to a tree. They were, and they did that. Like even the enemies did that with when King Saul was killed. They beheaded him and they put his son's bodies on the wall of that city to say, look, we conquered Israel's kings and we, we destroyed the entire royal line of Saul. And it says that his, his servants came afterwards, got his body down from the wall and buried it because the pagans would leave it until the birds had picked the bodies, you know, the clean. Now, the Lord said, okay, people need to be made a public example of. There needs to be a deterrent so that people won't commit adultery, so that people won't murder, so that people won't kidnap. And if they see somebody executed because of that, and they're left up there all day and say, oh, this is what happened to this person, I'm never going to do anything like that, then you're going to cut down the crime rate within your community. But at the same time, those people who committed those death penalty crimes were created in the image of God. And you are not to desecrate or pervert or, or mar the image of God. So that's why the bodies were taken down before sundown and buried. Because then the corruption starts taking place and the bodies begin to rot. Then the, the, the carnivorous birds would come and pick uh, the bones of, of, of these people that were hanged on a tree. Now, this is even carried over into modern-day Israel. Whenever there is a suicide bomb that takes place, sometimes you'll see the news clips. You'll see the, um, you know, the paramedics, and they'll be taking care of injured people. But then you'll see these people in yellow vests, and it looks like they're cleaning up the crime scene. They'll have trash bags or whatever. Do you know what these people are doing? They are picking up – that's right. They are picking up body parts. So whether it was a, a, you know, a Jew or whether it was a Palestinian, they are going to have the proper respect treated to their remains. Whether it was the perpetrator or whether it was the victim, it doesn't matter. The person was created in the image of God, and so they're going to treat those remains with respect. And so this is the same thing that's being said here, that no matter what the person did, no matter the crime, the person, their remains are going to be treated with respect because those remains represent the image of God. So it says, verse 23, his body is not to remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must certainly bury him the same day, for anyone hanged is a curse of God. You must not defile your land, because this would cause defilement of the land. We would be guilty of bloodshed, 
of disrespect to the image of God. So uh, we read in a pastoral portion of an unsolved murder that uh, there had to be a renunciation by the, the, by the town's closest by in a ritual to purge the land of this, this unresolved homicide. You think of how corrupt and how perverted and how defiled Canada and the United States are because of the blood of billions of children that were aborted. Of, of millions of unsolved murders and crimes that were never rectified or that blood is crying out for justice to God. So if Canada and the United States ends up getting a judgment from God, it is well deserved. I'm surprised he hasn't judged us by now because of the guilt of bloodshed alone. So this passage, what does this passage, does this remind anybody of anything else in the scripture? Yes, it talks about Yeshua, now Jesus. He, he uh, took care of the curse. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to read about that in John chapter 19. So in John chapter 19, we see this law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, being fulfilled at the point of Yeshua's death on the cross. So we know that this is the time of the Passover. And so in John chapter 19, uh, beginning with verse 31, it said, The day of preparation. Now, the day of preparation for a weekly Sabbath would be Friday because you weren't allowed to cook or to work or to do anything on the Sabbath day. To, so to get ready for everything ahead of time, they would have what is called a preparation day. So they wouldn't desecrate the Sabbath. This also happened whenever there was a holiday or a high holy day because these high holy days were also considered Sabbaths. They were treated just like a Sabbath. So it says it was the day of preparation and the next day was a festival uh, Sabbath so that the bodies should not remain on the execution stake during the Sabbath. So the bodies were going to be taken down before this, this occurred. They weren't going to stay on it. Now, if it was up to the Romans, they just leave it there until they were just skeletons. And it wasn't uncommon for travelers to Jerusalem or to any outpost that the Romans controlled to have the roads lined with crucifixes and criminals crucified. So you would see these bodies on your way into a given city that the Romans ruled, and that was a major deterrent. But not so with the Jewish state. Uh, even though the, the Romans ruled it and occupied it, they, they said, okay, we can't have this. you got to take the bodies down. So it says, um, says in verse 31, And it was the day of preparation, and the next day was a festival Sabbath, so that the bodies should not remain on the execution stake during the Sabbath. The Judean leaders asked Pilate to have the legs broken and to have the bodies taken away because somebody could linger on the cross for days. But if you broke the legs, they would have no means to prop themselves up to get breath, and they would suffocate. Verse 32, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been executed with Yeshua. Now they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and this was to make sure he was dead and not just passed out on the cross. And here's the proof. And immediately blood and water came out. Blood came from the heart. The water came from the lungs. So the spear pierced the lungs and the heart. You can't survive after you've been pierced through the lungs and the heart. So this proved beyond the shadow of a doubt Yeshua was dead, that he wasn't passed out. Because there's these theories that are floating around that, oh, it's, it's called the cool tomb theory, that Jesus passed out on the cross, they put him in the tomb, and the coolness of the tomb revived him. No, he was dead. And this proves he was dead. 
He who has been uh, he who has seen it has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, so that it also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And also the Passover lamb, which is representatory of Yeshua, you were not to break the bones of the Passover lamb when you were eating the Passover lamb. And again, another scripture says, "He that uh, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Okay, so that takes care of that passage. Now, the next passage I want to tackle is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. And this is very controversial in our day. Very controversial not only in our day in postmodern society, but also in religious circles because this scripture has often been taken out of context, even been taken out of context by a certain denomination uh, that, that's in this village. So it says, a man's apparel is not to be on a woman, nor is a man to wear a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is detestable to Adonai your God. So several things are being addressed here. This is obviously a prohibition against cross-dressing. So it's, uh, it's a prohibition against cross-dressing. One of the reasons being is that the pagan cults would often confuse the sexes. And men would dress like women, women would dress like men, especially in the priesthood of these pagan cults. So, and, and a lot of times, some of the men would be castrated to where it would almost appear as if they were a woman. So, these cultic practices were very perverted, very pagan. So, these are some of the reasons why this commandment was given to the Israelites, so that they wouldn't fall into the ways of the pagan nations that lived around them. Not only that, but it wasn't uncommon if there was a war for a guy to disguise himself as a woman in order to dodge the draft. We've even seen that in our modern day through the Vietnam War and, and, and other things like this. Not only that, they were men who were cowards, but they were also women who were brave who would disguise themselves as men so that they could go out and fight. And this prohibition in general is a prohibition against deception. Truth is truth. It says in Genesis, he made them male and female. Not male and female and 30 other genders, male and female. Science. Let's forget about the Bible and just go to science. XX, XY. Those are the only chromosomes available with the exception of, of uh, maybe a birth defect like hermaphroditism. And even then, usually one genitalia would be more predominant than the other, and that's usually the sex that you would become. So this was just a general pro prohibition against perversion and deception. Now, you'll have some denominations out there that say, well... This means that women can't wear pants. I don't read that anywhere in this passage. Because they didn't have pants back then. Everybody wore robes. Men wore robes. Women wore robes. But there was a clear distinction between a man's robe and a woman's robe. The decoration. The cut of the cloth. The material of the cloth. The colors of the cloth. All played a role in determining if it was a man's garment or woman's garment. But either way, if it was a man or a woman's garment, you could have a makeshift pair of pants created through that garment. You would just take the back of the robe, hike it up between your legs, tuck it in your belt, and it was like a pair of baggy pants. This freed your legs up so you could run, so you could work in the field, so you could fight, so that the robe wouldn't be restrictive in any way. This is not what the scripture is talking about. If you look into the Hebrew, the Hebrew would lend more that a woman should not wear military armaments that pertain to a man. So you would have a greater argument 
to say that women shouldn't be in the military. Why? Because women can't do what men can do? No, this isn't the issue. It's not about what men can do, what men, men can't do, or women can't do, or whatever. This was the Hebrew society that treasured their women because they were the ones who propagated the next generation. You get rid of the women, you can't have any more Hebrews. The women were not considered property. They were considered treasures and gifts from the Lord that needed to be defended because they were so precious. We're just not going to throw our women and have them sacrifice on the front lines of battle. So these, and then the women are the ones who mostly nurtured and took care of the children. So it was important that the women were protected, not that they couldn't. And God obviously made exceptions to this rule on occasions. We see this with Deborah. And that's really a sad commentary of the book of Judges because there was no man who had the backbone enough to stand up to the enemy. Because even Barak, that was the general of the army, said, oh, Deborah, if you're not going to go into battle, I'm not going. She's like, okay, fine. I'll go with you, but all the credit's going to go to a woman when this battle's won. So it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't portrayed in the positive. So this is what this verse means. It has nothing to do with pants. You know, I can't wear a pair of women's pants because the bum is too big and it's too short. The cut is totally different. It would look weird on me. Even a woman's shirt, the shoulders would be too narrow. The buttons would be on the other side. The style of the collar is different. You can clearly tell uh, women's garments from men's garments, even though we both wear shirts and we both wear pants. So it has nothing to do with that. So hopefully I was able to clarify that. Because that's a, a big question a lot of people have. So moving on to the next two verses, verses uh, 6 and 7. If there happens to be, now this is weird because we're reading this and it's like, what does this have to do with anything? If there happens to be a bird's nest in front of you along the road, in a tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the hen sitting on the young or the eggs, you are not to take the hen with the young. You must certainly let the hen go, but the young you may take for yourself so that it may go well with you and that you may prolong your days. Very odd passage. What does this mean? What is, how does this apply to our, our, our modern daily life? Well, to answer that, I'd like to go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to kind of learn what this uh, weird and odd commandment means and hopefully get some clarification on it. So in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And that means to bring into its full and complete meaning and understanding for the purpose of carrying it out yourself. Verse 18, amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, all we've got to do is look outside. We can still see that heaven and earth are still here. They haven't passed away. Not the smallest letter, which is a yud, it would look like a comma to us. So not the smallest letter or a seraph. A seraph is a decorative flare on any given Hebrew letter. So it's not technically a letter. It's just a decoration on a letter to make it look nice. Yeah, jot and a tittle would be the king, what the King James would say. Shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments. Okay, we know what the greatest commandment is because Yeshua even said himself, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if there's a greatest commandment, then there's a least of the commandments. What is the least of the commandments? We just read it. 
disturbing a bird's nest is the least of the commandments. Now, what's so critical or important about a bird's nest? And why, you know, why do we drive away the mother and take the young? For this purpose, God even cares about the emotions and the feelings of animals. So if you take a hen with her young and you kill them both, you're, you're on that road to making a species become extinct. That's happened with the dodo bird. That's happened with the Tasmanian tiger. It's happened with a lot of things we've just obliterated from the planet. Not only that, it would be very stressful to see for that hen to see her young being killed or being taken. So you're to drive the mother away and take the eggs or the young. Why? Because we eat eggs. We need it for food. We can use that for food. But if the mother doesn't see it, sure, she's going to miss her chicks, but she's not going to see, she's not going to be traumatized by seeing us taking and killing those chicks or, or those eggs. Not only that, she's a hen. She can have more. She can propagate. And that's the whole purpose is to keep the species propagating. That's why we don't kill the hen. And that's why even in wartime, God said, don't chop down fruit trees if you have to make some sort of war implements like siege ramps. Because you, you, you kill a fruit tree, you can't eat from it anymore. Use a tree that's not, you don't use for anything but building houses. So it's the same principle here. So this is why this commandment was given. It's called the least of the commandments. So who says that the Bible isn't for animal rights? Now, I can testify to this myself because I, had a, I grew up with a friend who went to church, and his parents owned a farm. Well, there was a cow and her calf. They made the stupid decision to kill the mother in front of the calf. Spunky, the name of the calf, was traumatized, and it became a mean bull. Stands to reason. So you don't do that because you can make animals turn mean without, you know, necess necessary meaning to or, or, or whatever. So this is to care for animals. God cares for all of his creation. So we even see uh, in Matthew 5 how this pertains because it talks about the least of the commandments. So we'll continue with that. It says, verse 19, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches others the same. We're kind of stepping on dangerous ground here because we have a lot of ministers and pastors say, oh, well, you don't have to worry about those laws in the Old Testament anymore. They've been done away with. Jesus did away with those. This is not what Jesus himself said. He is saying right here, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments, disturbing a bird's nest, and teaches others to do so, that eh, doesn't matter anymore, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why do we have to keep the commandments? Is it so that we can be saved? No, of course not. Keeping the commandments has nothing to do with our salvation. But modern day Christendom has equated the keeping of the commandments, people who decide to keep the commandments, with salvation. It's not a salvation issue. The Lord told me not to eat certain things, but if I eat a ham sandwich, I'm not going to go to hell. I'm going to do harm to my body because God said that's not good for you. It's not even considered food to me, so don't eat it. So it's the same here. The reason that the commandments, the commandments were given so that we can have a civil social order so that we can not only care for ourselves as human beings, but care for the properly care for the plant kingdom, properly care for the animal kingdom. God has these laws given to us for a reason, and they don't have anything to do with our salvation. So just because we decide not to disturb a bird's nest doesn't mean we're being legalistic. 
It has nothing to do with legalism. So it says, whoever teaches others to do so will be called uh, least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we know that the Torah scholars and the Pharisees, they kept the Torah to the letter, but only on the outside. They didn't keep the law on the inside. The spirit of the law is just as important as the literal physicality of the law. Thou shalt not kill. We all agree it's wrong to kill somebody, but you can hate somebody in your heart and kill them over and over in your heart and mind. You've murdered them already. You know, you may not jump in bed with somebody that's not your spouse, but you can lust after somebody and, and, and play that in your mind over and over and over, wishing you were sexually with this person. You've committed adultery in your heart. So the Lord's saying, yes, I expect you to keep these laws because, you know, it says I and the Father are one. So Yeshua's laws are no different than the laws of his father. They're the same. And Yeshua says, whatever the father speaks, I say. I don't say anything of my own accord. So these laws are important. Now, we may be in a different time, in a different place. We may apply these differently. And our whole legal and civil system are based on the Judeo-Christian principles and values of the Torah. It's just that we apply them differently. And some of them don't even apply to us because we don't live in Israel. Some of them don't apply to us because we're not Levitical priests. Some of them don't apply to us because some of us are men and some of us are women. Some of them don't apply to us because the situation is not right for us to carry out those certain commandments. Because we don't live in Israel, because the temple isn't standing, because there's no Levitical priesthood. But we know one day Yeshua is going to return, the temple is going to be rebuilt, he's going to be the high priest of Melchizedek, supervising the Levitical priesthood, and we know that the sacrifices are going to be reinstituted. And that too has nothing to do with our salvation. Because it was always to point to Yeshua, who was going to come. Once he's came, it all points back to Yeshua. We even see Paul the Apostle, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, still sacrificing in the temple to fulfill a Nazarite vow. So we've got to put God's word into perspective and get this idea out of our head that people keep the law to be saved. No, I keep the law because I am saved. Because this is what God expects from me, how to behave and how to keep myself well physically, mentally, and spiritually. And a lot of this doesn't even have to do with our salvation and our standing with the Lord. All right, is that clear to everybody? Okay, all right, moving on to verse 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, it says, When you build a new house, you are to make a guardrail for your roof, so that you do not bring the guilt of blood on your house if anyone falls from it. Very practical. Because back then, they had flat roofs, and their roofs doubled as a patio and as a guest room. So when, in the scripture, when it talks about if you, go on to, if you go on top of your roof, don't go back into your house to get anything again, you flee to the hills. You're thinking, well, how are you going to go back to your house and flee to the hills if you're on the roof? You can't go back inside your house. Well, yeah, you can because they had stairs on the outside of their house that led to the roof. So now that makes a little bit more sense. But the roof was a place that you entertained guests, and it's a place where sometimes guests stayed. And so you don't want anybody to become hurt on your property. And this is the part of loving your neighbor as yourself. So this is speaking of negligence. So we can apply this to Canada. If you don't scrape, shovel, and salt your driveway, and somebody falls, you're liable. You deserve to pay for their medical expenses. Now, some, now, you can do that and do that to the best of your ability, and somebody might still slip and fall, but you can't be negligent because you tried. You know, accidents do happen, but if you're like, nah, whatever, 
You know, that's why we put, uh, you know, uh, caution cones and caution tape around manholes that are open. That's why we have guardrails on the side of the road when we're next to a cliff. This is just so that people won't get hurt. So as a homeowner and as a decent human being, you're going to do everything in your power to keep your neighbor safe when they're on your property. You know, some people I've been to their house. Oh, well, watch that step there. You know, that, that, you know, that, that first step is a doozy or whatever. Or, oh, watch on this sidewalk because this is a little uneven. Well, that's the right thing to do because you don't want people to be hurt. So that's just pretty simple and straightforward. So the, the, the Torah is extremely, extremely practical. So even the title, as you see in our scriptures of chapter 22, is called Love in Practice. So chapter 22, basically summing it up, could be love your neighbor as yourself. Now, moving on to verse 9. Now, this is another one that doesn't make sense to us. And we're like, Lord, why did you put this in here? Because it doesn't make sense. So Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 9 says, You are not to plant your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or else the whole harvest will be forfeit, both the seed you plant and the produce of your vineyard. Verse 10, you are not to plow with an ox or a donkey together. Verse 11, you are not to wear a woven mixture of wool and linen together. Okay, big deal. So what? This is one of those things that's not going to send anybody to hell if they do. So why is the Lord even instructing this? There's a greater lesson because a lot of these commandments were to allude to a spiritual truth and a spiritual principle. And by physically obeying the commands, constantly reminded us of this spiritual principle. So let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Yeah, keep your finger in Deuteronomy because we'll be coming back there. So in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is the spiritual principle of what we just read of not having an ox and a donkey hooked up together. Why? They're two different species, number one. Uh, number two, they're different makeups and physical strengths. The ox is going to pull uh, stronger and therefore drag the donkey behind that can't keep up because it's not as big and as strong. It's, again, mercy on the animal kingdom and taking animals... Uh, thoughts and feelings into consideration. That's why the commandment too is you are not to muzzle an ox while treading the grain. That's cruel. If they're working, they should eat if they're hungry. So it's considerate for the animal. And then this also applies to where it's talking about, you know, if somebody's passing along a grain field and they get the munchies, they're allowed to pick a few grapes or to take a, a few heads of grain and roll it in their hand and eat it. It's to satisfy a hunger. It's also for the employee who's harvesting in the vineyard. It's kind of cruel to dangle a carrot in front of your face knowing that you can never have it. And if you dangle a carrot in somebody's face, they might resort to stealing because they're, they're desperate, they're poor, they're hungry. So if they're working in the vineyard, let them eat a few grapes. It's to take human and animal feelings and their physicality into consideration. So in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? You know, we can make the example between clean and unclean. 
Clean and unclean doesn't mean good or evil. It just means God has a different purpose. Pigs are unclean. Lobsters are unclean, but they serve a purpose in God's created order. They're the garbage disposals. They help keep the earth clean so we don't get sick. So they're unclean, not that they're evil, but they're unclean. And that's why they're not even deemed as a food source by God. But then you have the, the, the sheep. Well, they're good for food. They're a clean animal, but they're also good for sacrifice because God said you can sacrifice these domesticated animals. So uh, what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does there have between light and darkness? What harmony does Messiah have with Belial? And what part does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, what Paul is saying here is don't go into business with somebody who's an unbeliever because they have different business practices. And we can recite through the Torah where it says don't have different weights and measures. In other words, be fair in your business practices. But we often apply this passage because it could be applied that way as well. Don't get married to an unbeliever because you're going to have a lot of problems in your marriage. Because you don't see, you're not going to raise the kids the same. You're not going to look at things the same. So what agreement does God, God's temple have with idols? We are all the temple of the living God, just as God had said. Uh, making sure I'm reading everything. Okay, yeah, we'll just go ahead and stop right there, I guess. So back to Deuteronomy. Uh, it says, you are not to plant uh, your vineyard with two kinds of seeds. Because what's going to happen is one's going to steal nutrients from the other. One crop's going to be more successful than the other. It's kind of like what Yeshua said uh, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. You're going to cause damage, you know, if you plant two different kinds of seeds. Um, this also kind of goes into the, the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee where God says, let the land rest because you've devoided of nutrients by growing for these seven years, these 50 years. Now let it rest so that... The, the, the soil can rejuvenate and have the uh, nutrients so that you can have successful crops again. And then it goes on to say, um, verse 10, you are not to plow with an ox or a donkey together. So we've kind of covered that. You are not to wear a woven mixture of wool and linen. So what's the difference between wool and linen? Why do you think that's a thing? Shrink. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, one will shrink, right? One is a breathable material and one isn't. Yeah, one's a breathable material, one isn't. You also have one that's from the animal kingdom, one from the plant kingdom. Now, this is just scientific speculation because the Bible doesn't say this, but one of the reasons, because this is one of these hukim, these commandments without a, a, a logical explanation, but wool will send a signal to your body to retain heat. That's why we wear wool sweaters, it keeps us warm. Cotton or linen from the plant world when we wear these, it sends a signal to our body that we can breathe. So it allows us to sweat. Now, if you wear a mixture of wool and linen, uh, your body's not really going to know what to do. Uh, it's going to confuse the body, and it's not really healthy. Not only that, there's a secondary reason, is that the priesthood wore garments, and some of those garments were linen, some were wool. And so we're not to wear the same garments of the priesthood because we're not to imitate, and we're not them. We weren't born them. So that's kind of another reason that sometimes rabbis will give. You are to make yourself twisted threads on the four corners of your garment, which you are to cover yourselves. Okay, this is the, the zit seat, the fringes that I wear all the time, that Yeshua wore, that the woman with the issue of blood grabbed onto because Yeshua was a Torah-obedient Jew. Uh, so these, the reason that we are to wear these twisted uh, uh, uh 
um, uh, chords is back in the day, you were able to tell somebody's tribe and lineage by their fringes. And God's saying, I, I'm, I'm making a fringe so everybody will know that you're children of God, that you're my people, my tribe, and you're going to tell my story because the five knots represent the five books of Torah, what we live by, our, our, the, 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 you know, the word of God. And the four twists is representatory of the four-letter Hebrew name of God, yud heh vav sometimes pronounced Yahweh. And the blue cord is representative of the throne throne room of heaven, the floor of heaven. So um, this is kind of another reason. So even Jews today will still wear these, these fringes. And these fringes are to remind us to keep the commandments as it says so in other parts of the scripture. All right, now let's move to, let's skip to uh, 23 verse 1. All right, so 23 verse 1 says, A man is not to take his father's wife. He is not to expose his father's nakedness. Now, this is where the scripture goes into euphemisms, figures of speech that were readily understood by the people of that day, not so much understood by us today. So basically, this was saying that a man's wife, not necessarily the guy's own mother, but maybe the concubine, right? Maybe the, the concubine or the slaves or the handmaids or what have you. Basically, the Lord was saying pagan nations... If a man dies, he even leaves his wives as an inheritance to his son because his son is taking over the estate. You're not to do this because you're not to imitate the way of the pagans. And this was also a big declaration to the world that women have rights, just as men do. So in that way, the Torah puts equality with man and woman in certain issues that women have rights. So to uncover the father's nakedness, this was a euphemism to you know, basically remit a sexual covenant or a sexual union. So we even see this occur in the book of Ruth because Ruth uncovers the feet of Boaz saying, I want you to marry me. You have the right to marry me. You are the kinsman redeemer. I'm a widow. I need to be taken care of because there was no independent women in that day. There was no welfare system in that day. So that's uh, not only that, but it says a man is not to take his father's wife. This was considered a power grab. We see Reuben doing this. Because he slept with uh, Bilhah, uh, his, uh, Jacob's handmaid. And this was highly offensive to Jacob, and therefore Reuben forfeited his uh, firstborn inheritance because it was considered a power grab. We see that even David's sons did this when they wanted to usurp the throne. David was on the run, he was in the cave of Adullam, and uh, one of his sons uh, slept with his concubine on the rooftop of the palace to say, hey, I'm in charge now. My dad's weak, and I'm taking over. So that's why God commanded this in Deuteronomy 23.1. Uh, jumping down, is everybody still with me? Yeah. So um, do, you, do you guys like that I'm tackling these hard verses that are kind of like weird? Okay, good, good. I'm, all right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good, good. All right, so uh, in 23, moving down to verses 25, um, 25 and 26. All right, so we've kind of already discussed this, but um, I'll just read the verse and read you the comparing uh, New Testament passage to where it'll bring it all to light. It says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes. See, back in the day, there was no uh, 7-Elevens. There was no Cracker Barrels. There was no exits that you can pull off to and eat. So when people are traveling, they usually traveled by donkey or horse or on foot, and they would pass through these fields. So the fields were kind of like a restaurant or a convenience store, just enough to tide your hunger until you got to where you were going. 
So it says, um, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard and you may eat your fill of grapes, but when, but you are not to put any in your basket. So that would be considered harvesting as opposed to gleaning. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you are not to swing a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So this reminds us of what took place in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12. And we even seen this played out before us on an episode of The Chosen, and I really don't like the way they did it. Because it really gave the wrong impression, in my opinion, and it really didn't clear up things. But it says in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 6, At that time, when Yeshua went through the grain fields on Sabbath, his disciples became hungry and began to pluck the heads of grain and eat them. Now his disciples, the majority of them, were raised as Torah-obedient, good Jewish boys who went to Hebrew school when they were little. So if this was a prohibition of the Torah, they would not even think to touch that grain on a Sabbath day. But there was no prohibition of just eating to satisfy your hunger on the Sabbath day. They were not breaking any Sabbath laws. If they broke any of the Sabbath laws and Yeshua encouraged it or did it himself, he would disqualify himself immediately from being the Son of God and being Messiah because Messiah was perfect and he didn't break any laws. But we see that the Pharisees had a beef with it because their own made-up rules in addition to God's laws is the problem. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are not doing what is permitted on the Sabbath. Oh yeah, by who? Not by God. By you guys. Verse 3, But he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he became hungry and those with him? How he entered into God's house and ate the showbread, which is not permitted for him to eat, nor those with him, but only for the priests. David's situation was a life-or-death situation, and Yeshua was using the story to emphasize life over law. Yeah, we know this bread belongs to the Kohanim, the priest, but David and his men were on an urgent mission from God. They needed this bread to sustain themselves and be alive. There was no other around. Verse 5, or haven't you read in the Torah that on the Sabbath, the Kohanim, the priests, break the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Why, why do they break the Sabbath? Because they're working. That's their job. But God said, this is my service, and this is my inheritance to the Levites, so they, did, they were innocent. So that kind of puts that passage into perspective as well. That's another one people have a hard time dealing with. Now back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. This, we, we've read that God not only gives rights to animals, so God is for animal rights. God not only gives rights to women, so God is for women's rights. But he's for, uh, for the rights of the immigrant, rights of the widow, rights of the slave. You are not to hand over to his master a slave who seeks refuge from his master. There's a reason why he ran away. Let him dwell with you in the midst. You're to be a sanctuary to these runaway slaves. Let him dwell with you in your midst. And in the place he chooses with one of your town's gates, the one that is good for him, and you are not to mistreat him. So we're not going to go to this passage for the sake of time, but the letter to Philemon deals with the runaway slave. Paul said, look, I have the right to keep him for myself because Paul knew the law and that he shouldn't return Onesimus to Philemon. But yet he knew that there was something different because Philemon was a believer. And it kind of indicates that Onesimus ran away because he stole from his master. So it wasn't that he was running away because the guy was cruel. So, it was, so in a way, this Torah passage doesn't really apply. 
But at the same time, Paul was considerate. He's like, look, I want to keep him for myself because he's become useful to me, but he is your slave. So I'm taking you into consideration. So if you take him back, he's not going to be a slave anymore because he's beneficial to you. He's going to be your brother. So treat him as an employee, not as a slave, is kind of the, the, the general idea we get from uh, the book of Philemon. So we see how the Torah plays into the New Testament passages. Now here's another one, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 5. Suppose a man takes a wife and marries her. And now if she doesn't find favor in his eyes because he found something indecent in her, he is to write her a certificate of divorce and hand it to her and send her out of the house. Well, according to the Pharisees, if she burnt your food, that was grounds enough to send her away. One rabbi tells a joke, one rabbi tells a joke saying, well, my wife believes that I'm a god. Well, why is that? Because she gives me a burnt offering every morning. <laughs> So we even know that, that uh, Yeshua said the only reason that Moses allowed for divorce, God ordained divorce, is because of the hardness of your hearts. Divorce wasn't, is not even in my head or in my heart. I hate divorce, and it's better if you stay together. The only legitimate reason, in my opinion, is infidelity. But it, so it says here, suppose a man takes a wife and marries her. Now if she doesn't find favor in his eyes because he has found something indecent in her, he has to write her a certificate of divorce and hand it to her and send her out of the house. When she leaves his house, she may go and become another man's wife. Now suppose the second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and hands it to her and leaves the house, or suppose the second husband who took her uh, to be his wife dies, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her to be a wife again after she has been defiled, for that would be detestable before Adonai. Uh, you are not to bring guilt on the land that Adonai your God is giving you as inheritance. So in a way, this doesn't make sense to us. Okay, she got divorced, married another man, this man dies or divorced her. Why can't she go back to her original husband if this original husband wants her? Because there's something we don't understand or know. The, the, the people of the day were using God's Torah to try to find loopholes to satisfy their lust and to sin. Well, I can have sex with any woman that I want as long as I'm married to her. As long as I'm married to her, that's okay. Okay, I've been with you. You don't satisfy me. Go be the, 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 the wife of somebody else. This was an ancient wife-swapping scam. Because all you had to do is get divorced and remarried, and it was okay because it was all legal because you're married. There's no, there's no adultery or fornication here because it's all legal. This was given by God in Deuteronomy chapter 23 to put an end to this wife-swapping scam. He says, this is not righteous. She has been defiled. You can't have her back just because the other guy divorced her or because this other guy died. No, you already gave her up. And a divorce represents a death. She's not available to you anymore. Uh, so hopefully that explains... Uh, that. Uh, okay. All right, verse uh, 24, or no, uh, chapter 24, verse 19. I may not be able to get through all these today. Okay, this, so this is a pretty simple one. It's odd because we have modern indoor plumbing. So this is basically, this is talking about, um, nope. Okay, I'll, I'll cover that since I brought it up. So it's talking about in uh, verse 13 that uh, you're to go outside the camp, you're to have a spade or a shovel with you. 
because they didn't have like latrines or indoor plumbing. So to keep sanitary the camp, you were not to have any feces or any kind of defecation in the camp. So you went outside to do that, but we have modern day plumbing. So that's why this doesn't apply today, but we can understand why this passage was given back in the day. Didn't want to go there, but I accidentally did. So <laughs> let's move on to verse 19. Uh, chapter 24, verse 19. I was in the wrong chapter, too. Okay. All right, it says, When you reap the harvest in your field and you've forgotten a sheaf in the field, you are not to turn back to get it. It is for the outsider, for the orphan and for the widow, in order that Adonai your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you are not to search through the branches afterwards. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, for the widow. When you harvest your vineyard, you are not to pick over it afterward. It is for the outsider, for the orphan, and for the widow. You are to remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. So basically, this was God's welfare system. Nobody got a free ride. Nobody got a free meal. But there were people who, you know, maybe employment was bad, or there were poor people, or there were migrant workers. They were able to maintain their dignity by not having charity or handouts, but still being able to work and earn their living. So when a guy owned a field and hired people to harvest the field, whatever they dropped behind them by accident, the people that were behind them were harvesting too. That was the poor people, the orphans, the widows, the migrant workers that came and was able to glean whatever was dropped or left behind. Now, sometimes you'd be harvesting, you think you were done, you're like, oh, darn it, I forgot this sheaf in the field. Well, too bad. That's for the stranger and for the orphan. You're not to glean the edges of your field. Leave a little bit there. So it's not just the gleanings, but there's even some good stuff for the people. So we see this fulfilled in the book of Ruth. Perfect example of this law being applied by Boaz, by righteous Boaz. We also see the commandment of the Leverite marriage, the kinsman redeemer. So that if a brother uh, died without producing male offspring, a man died without producing male offspring, his brother had the right to impregnate her. And once that male child was born, that male child would be considered the dead man's son. He would carry on the family line. And that was so important. And so we see this happening also in the book of Ruth as well. And we know that Ruth was a Moabitess, but yet she's in the lineage of Messiah Yeshua. So that I kind of, I'll just leave that right there. And uh, so, all right. So in chapter 25, Okay, we just covered that. So I won't even read that. So it's talking about the Levite marriage. So, okay, we already did that. All right, so now, well, I'm going to end with this very brain twister, this really odd, weird one. So this is in chapter 25, verses 11 through 16. This seems very uh, barbaric to our, sense, our Western sensitivities. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse uh, 11? 11. Suppose people fight with one, uh, one another, a man and his brother, and the wife of the one approaches to rescue her husband from the hand of the one hitting him, and she puts out her hand and grabs him by the genitals. Then you are to cut off her hand. Your eye will show no pity. Man, that, that's a little harsh. Don't you think? She was just defending her husband, but look at it through the eyes of the ancients. A man's genitals was, of course, his reproductive organs. All of his descendants is contained in his genitals. If you crush or maim his genitals, you make him sterile. He can't 
propagate his family line. That was considered murder. You killed this man's descendants. He will no longer have any descendants to carry on his name or his family line. So if it's murder, I think cutting off a hand is pretty light. If you were eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as most people think, you would kill her for, for her killing his descendants. Now, we're not even saying that this even happened literally. There's no record that this ever happened in the Talmud. The commandment enough was deterrent enough for something like this to ever happen. So we're even having it a doubt that even this occurred. But in case it occurred, this is how you handle the situation. Now, that's the literal interpretation. There's an idiomatic interpretation of this as well. Because what is right after that? Right after that is talking about weights and measures. And think of the idiomatic language. Verse 13, you are not to have stones. What is the male genitalia sometimes referred to? Stones. <laughs> you are not to have stones of different weights and measures in your bag. Okay, can you kind of see bag stones? You kind of see the analogy here? It's talking about livelihood, talking about propagation. A guy, the way the guy made a living was his business. That was considered his livelihood. So you can see the idiomatic language being instituted here. So it says, <clears throat> um, okay, you must not have, okay, all right, yeah. You are not to have stones of different weights and measures in your bag, large and small. You are not to have in your house ephahs uh, of different measures, large and small. You must have a full and honest weight and measure, and a full and honest uh, weight and measure, so that your days may be long in the land of your that your God is giving you. For you, for all you who do these things, all who do injustice are detestable to Adonai your God. So okay, let's we've dealt with the literal interpretation of this. The idiomatic interpretation is maybe this wasn't didn't even happen physically, but if we look at it in idiomatic language, according to the rabbis and sages, this woman somehow ruined this man's business. You attack my husband, I'm going to get you back by giving you a bad Yelp review. I'm going to say that you your business stinks, or I'm going to sabotage your business in some way because I'm a woman and I can't physically fight you. It's the only way I can get back at you for what you did to my husband. So this could be considered that as well, because right after that, grabbing the genitals is talking about weights and measures. What do those two have to do with each other? It just seems like, the, okay, you dealt with this, and then out of the blue, here's another subject. No, the rabbis thinks it's actually one subject matter, and that's how they blend these passages together uh, to, to make sense. So hopefully I was able to answer that, because that's a difficult passage. And as believers, we're like, God, this doesn't make sense to me. Okay, I know you're holy, and I know you're just, but this doesn't seem right to me. So does this make sense to you now? And it kind of explains things. So you feel a little bit better about that passage now? <laughs> so, uh, all right. We'll go ahead and uh, close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. This was kind of an odd Torah portion, and it was more teaching than preaching. And But I'm glad that you uh, allowed me to be able to deal with some difficult passages that even a lot of pastors and ministers scratch their heads and say, oh, I, I don't know what this is. Uh, we'll just skip it. you know. But we know that you're holy and just, so we know that there's got to be some kind of meaning. We just don't understand because we're looking at it through our Western glasses, and we need to look at it through the lens of history, the lens of the Hebraic language, and the lens of the Hebraic culture. So we thank you that you've provided us the answers for these difficult passages. Help us to apply these other passages that are very practical to our lives so that we might be good believers in, in lights, salt and light to this dark world. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
And we end by the Aaronic benediction. Yevarekaka Adonai Vishmareka. Yeer Adonai Panava Lecha Vechuneka. Yesa Adonai Panava Lecha Veasem Laka Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshenu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. Shalom and Shavuotov.